You are back with the conversation, and today we're talking about the state of private schools across the islands. Our guests today are Philip Bossert. He's the executive director of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools in Honolulu, Hawaii. He joined HEIS as a project manager in 2008 to manage the five-year HEIS Schools of the Future initiative, and from 2011 to 17, served as director of programs. Dan White is founding head of school at uh, Island Pacific Academy after serving as head of school at three other institutions in California and Hawaii. He served as an HEIS board member for 12 years and was board president 2008-2010. Prior to coming to Hawaii, he served for six years on the accrediting uh, commission for schools of the Western Association of Schools and Colleges representing the California Association of Independent Schools. And Robert Witt is the founding executive director of HAIS, where he served for 25 years from 1989 to 2014. He has 45 years of service in the field of education as a teacher and school administrator. He too has an extensive background in accreditation and has been frequently called before legislative committee, committees to testify on matters concerning K through 12 education, both in the public and private sector. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank Happy you. to be here. Well, we understand there's a new book out chronicling the history of HAIS. And Phil Bosser, we understand this was your idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've been in this uh, executive director role for just two years now. And uh, when it came up to realizing it was the 50th anniversary coming up in 2019-2020, uh, um, the staff and I were talking one day around lunch, and we just thought, wow, you know, Robert's sort of a walking history book too all, and but uh, we just thought we we need to pump him for all that information um, while he's still alive and so the idea of working on a project um, initially I think initially we just thought we would um, get the information and put it into a file so we had it but then in talking with Robert and then Dan later um, the idea of actually publishing a book about the founding of HEIS its early years came up and they were both willing to do it. And Robert, I'm glad that we got to you before you kicked the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I just checked my pulse. And I'm okay. <laughs> well, so talk about what this was like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you cr uh, actually put it down, you yeah. know, uh, in, a, in, a, in a timeline. Yeah. Uh, working on this book uh, was an honor and a privilege and working with Dan was something that I've done before. And we had a great time. Mm -hmm. We both learned a lot. I think what Phil was thinking, and we agreed, was that 50 years is a long time. And it's hard to remember, for us even, what happened at the early stages of HEIS. And so um, I came on board in 1989, but the association was founded in 1970, basically. So what happened from 1970 to 1990? 20 years. And so we looked very carefully at the founding fathers of HAIS, and they're mentioned frequently in chapter one. And then there was a second group of founders, if you will, in the 70s and 80s. And the names of these people will be familiar to some of your listeners. There was uh, Joe Pinchon, uh, at La Pietra, Rod McPhee from Punahou, David Kuhn from Iolani, and then Jack Darville from Kamehameha Schools. And they were followed shortly thereafter by um, Dorothy Douthat, um, David Kennedy, Lester Sincade, and Bob Peters. And so those people um, 
created the infrastructure uh, for HEIS and also a philosophy. And they believed that an ecosystem, if you will, of private schools would help all the schools. The big schools, in a way, needed the little schools. The little schools needed the big schools. So we discovered there was a theme that we characterized as independence, yes, we had to protect that and nurture that, but also mutual interests and common interests. We just called it mutuality. And that's in all the chapters. And, and, and Dan, Dan talk, yeah, talk that. about that, Dan. You know, mm -hmm. it's the yin-yang yeah. thing. Absolutely, the yin-yang. I, I think what got us started on that, that the notion of how important the founding values uh, were um, is that we talk about independent schools being uh, uh, mission-driven, and missions often are, are derived from values. Well, the association that was founded, in fact, reflects those same um, uh, attributes that, that individual schools do. There's a story that is, it, it's probably, well, it's, it, it probably isn't apocryphal, it's probably true, but we've probably embellished it over the years. And that was that uh, Joe Pinchon was sitting in his office at La Pietra, and uh, he, uh, in the old days, you used to get films from national distributing companies, and there was a box that uh, was sending a film to, or the, the uh, company was sending a film to La Pietra, and, uh, Joe decided to peel back the address label and find out where it had been before and discovered that it had been at Punahou about a month before. And it sort of, the light bulb went on for him and said, no, wait a minute, uh, maybe there's a way in which Punahou and La Pietra could talk about what we're doing here in a way that would save both schools money. Now, you don't think about Punahou having to save money, but one of the ways you get to be wealthy is to make sure you don't waste <laughs> money. Uh, so you look at that group that Robert was talking about, Joe and David and Rod and Jack, three are from very large schools, but Joe is from the small schools. Yeah. Uh, it was Betty White that pointed out uh, when we were talking with her for the, for the book that uh, the, the smaller schools in the state have really benefited from the fact that the larger schools understand the importance of this ecosystem. Uh, the mutuality, well, uh, you, you mentioned that Robert had been before the legislature. Uh, that's one way. Uh, I, I think the accreditation process that we've developed in Hawaii, and we did that in tandem with California, is second to none nationally. Uh, it really looks, it's a strength-built model, not a deficit-built model. There's all kinds of attributes it has, has to it. Those are two specific examples of the mutuality. But as a head of school, I was hired by a trustee, by a board of trustees, to look after the, <laughs> the school that I was hired to look after. And so you've got that tension. You, you, you want to collaborate, and there are ways in which you can collaborate, collaborate. But at the same time, you need to retain your own individual character. It's not so different than what we would see in general society. We're parts of community, but we're trying to assert, our, assert ourselves as individuals. So it, it's not exactly a new theme in human history, but we thought it was really important to bring it out because that's where we started. And I think that if you look at the association now, that's where they still are. And you all have uh, backgrounds with accreditation. Um, can we talk about that? I mean, how you've been able to help other schools? Yeah, well, basically accreditation, um, again, the mutuality is there in that people from different private schools come and form the accreditation teams that visit a school. So your peers are judging you, um, and basically they're not telling you what to do. They're, they're looking at you and saying, are you doing what you say you're doing and how well are you doing it? And, uh, I mean, Robert has a lot more background on that. I should defer to him. <laughs> uh, Catherine, accreditation 
is the way that we assure parents who are thinking about a private school for their child that it is a reliable um, place, a safe place, a place where their child will learn well, a, a place where their child will make good friends and so forth. Accreditation is involving a self-study by the members of a school community of their own community and their own program. And they have to look at it um, very, very carefully and write it up. So the self-reflection process leads to improvement. Kind of a 360. It's a 360 mm -hmm. kind of thing. When accreditation was first introduced in Hawaii back in the early 70s, it was really more of something that happened to a school every six years. When Dan and I came along and started working on it with Bob Peters and Dorothy Douthat and some of those guys, we decided that it should be more of an assets-driven program. Let's help schools understand themselves better. And that's what we've done. Um, also, we developed the licensing program that is modeled after the accreditation program. So we really, over the years, became a school improvement organization, perhaps more than anything else, and also a professional development for teachers organization. Well, you're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests in our studio are Phil Bossert, the executive director of uh, the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, Dan White, founding head of Island Pacific Academy in Kapolei, and Robert Witt, uh, founding executive director of HAIS. Uh, let's we'll talk about the accreditation process. Have we had a, a situation where uh, a school has lost its accreditation? I don't recall. You would know better than, than I. Well, I th we've had schools that have been placed in, on, on probation. Okay. Um, I'm not aware of anybody since I've been here that actually lost its accreditation. <laughs> Generally speaking, if they were in that dire strait, they would go out of business before that would happen. Uh, but having been a part of the accrediting commission um, out of that meets in California and includes Hawaii, yes, there are schools that in fact lose accreditation. Um, and um, that, I think Robert's correct in saying it's, it's, it's a way that the uh, independent schools can say to the larger community, uh, this school has a clear-cut mission, it is serving its mission, it knows what it's doing, it has the resources to apply to that. Um, it, it's, it's one of those sort of shorthand things we say that uh, about accreditation is that uh, schools, uh, if they're going to fail, uh, governance and finance are generally the reasons. It's, we don't think about the importance of governance, but if there isn't a, a good governance uh, body there that is sort of uh, assuring that the mission is being met, that the, uh, that the school is uh, fiscally sound, uh, that it has good leadership, all those things, uh, that's a problem. It's a problem if they intrude too much. So governance is one of those things that's also a bit of a dynamic uh, tension. And finance is obvious. If you don't have any money, you can't operate. Uh, and that's very much enrollment-driven. All right, you've been listening to Dan White. I know we have uh, three male guests today, and uh, if, if maybe you gentlemen could identify yourselves and mm. help our listeners mm. know where you're coming from. Uh, let's talk briefly about charter schools, because I know uh, I've done stories on you know schools that have just uh, had issues with either finances or governance mm. and had their charters yanked. Uh, and, and we've had a number of new charters crop up. Uh, so who wants to take that question? 
I think Phil first, and I'll follow. Okay, so uh, this is Phil. Um, so when the charters first came, basically a charter school is a publicly funded private school. Uh, unlike public schools, charters have their own board, and they can pick their own curriculum, um, and they most of them have a 501c3 fundraising arm, uh, and so they're very much like a private school. Um, and I think a lot of people thought when the charter schools started they were going to take all the private school <laughs> students away, but that was not the case. Um, and the uh, most of the charters have drawn their students from the public schools, and most of the charters or many of the charters uh, have been started by public school teachers mm. who want to do something uh, new and different and innovative. And part of the founding idea for charter schools were these, this, they're called new century charters, uh, was for them to get out there, do innovative stuff, and it works, then it mm. feeds back into the public mm. schools, and that has been the case. Um, and Robert can talk more uh, about how HAIS stepped in uh, with the help of Kamehameha Schools to help some of the charters. Yes, thank you, Phil. Um, we were there at the beginning, and the reason for that was we believe at HAIS that high-quality education is needed for every child in our state. Now, if you look at the purpose of charter schools, it's often very specific to a community, um, a rural area, to a particular type of child. And specifically, uh, we were interested in the Hawaiian-focused charter schools early on because we had seen some of them develop and they needed some help. So we identified that as something HAIS could do. We shared resources very early on intellectually um, with charter schools, and then we've helped them with the accreditation process and also with licensing and teacher professional development. So we were an early adopter. Um, I think there's a tendency on the part of private school administrators to worry that charters are taking students away, but the research proves that's not the case. It's really more of a competitive situation with public schools. So I think that's good. If you have competition, you get better. <laughs> that's what the charter schools have done. And uh, I recall, I think, when um, uh, Island Pacific Academy uh, first started, uh, and uh, uh, I, I I know we've had a changing of the guard with a lot of uh, the other schools that have been around uh, uh, for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we've had the uh, Punahou uh, headmaster step down, or the president, I should say. Uh, we saw that at Kamehameha Schools, at Midpac with Joe Rice, uh, you know, uh, going back to the days of Valley Washington from Iolani School, you know, Betty White. I mean, the, the list yeah. goes on. We just had this incredible brain trust, mm -hmm. and then... Uh, and then they stepped away, but there's an, a new crop of, of yeah. folks uh, out there. Yeah, Catherine, this is Dan. Uh, and actually, uh, when I got involved in the, in, in, in the, the book writing project uh, with, with Phil, it was for really just that reason. I, it, was, it was my last meeting as a member of the HIS board, and I looked around the table, and I realized when Betty and Jim left that the institutional history was gone. And so I never thought of a book. I thought, well, let's just write some stuff down here and make sure it's not lost in much the same way that Robert was talking about. And, and Phil was the one that said, well, let's just make a book out of it. Um, 
I'm, I'm a, a real optimist when it comes to that. And I'll give you a specific. Uh, uh, this week I was in, in, involved in a, a luncheon for current school heads. Uh, several uh, of them we are trying to uh, encourage to become chairs of these visiting committees to go out uh, uh, and do the accreditations. Uh, now, admittedly, Bob Peters and I were the old guys. We were sitting there, and there were a couple of others who had experience. But as I looked at the table, I realized that uh, kind of what uh, I think David Kuhn was the one that talked about you know, the, the new centurions, and he was talking probably about us. <laughs> uh, and it's pretty, <laughs> you know, so, so now it's, uh, you know, what do you do when the young Turks are old? Um, uh, but it's really reassuring to see that these young people are coming along and taking the responsibility, very much buying into the ethos uh, of the public purpose of private education, of uh, the, the need for, for uh, collaboration and mutuality through the schools of the future is an excellent example of schools coming together uh, and sharing uh, information in a professional development manner and then extending that to the public school uh, uh, faculties as well. So this notion that, yeah, we're all in the business of educating all of Hawaii's children is alive and well with those young people around the table. Now, uh, I, I recall with David Kuhn, I recall when Iolani um, opened their doors to girls, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a big deal. Uh, and then we saw that with St. Francis, mm -hmm. you know, Sister Joan of Arc, and, you know, we saw St. Francis close down, and that was, I think, uh, kind of traumatic for, for the community. Um, but, but let's talk about that, about those trends, you know, where it's single-sex education, and then you've, uh, you know, you've had also schools that either added, uh, uh, let's say, higher grades or schools that were middle and then going down to elementary. That's true. Uh, this is Phil. Um, so over the years, um, we have seen s some of the uh, single-sex schools um, become uh, dual-sex schools, uh, dual-gender, um, and, um, and partly to deal with uh, enrollment issues, uh, but also uh, it's to give different opportunities uh, perhaps to the kids growing up. We've seen um, just this year, uh, Waldorf, uh, Hunnell and Waldorf decided to close its high school um, and uh, consolidate back to a single campus. Um, so there's various reasons, as Dan mentioned, it could be financial reasons and it could be enrollment reasons and competition. Um, there was a, a significant expansion in the number of private schools in the 1990s um, when the population in Hawaii of school-aged children jumped by almost 75,000. And so public school enrollments went up, private school enrollments went up, more private schools opened. And then during the recession period, um, in between about 2006 or seven and uh, 2012, 2013, 25 uh, private schools closed. Uh, they just ran out of students, so to speak. Um, but uh, in general, the percentage of students attending private schools has stayed pretty constant at between 15 and, and 17 percent for the last 30 years. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Dan, what, what do you, I mean, uh, uh, Bob, what do you think that uh, means? Um, the enrollment at the larger schools, if you will, uh, remains pretty steady. And so if you look at the private school community as a whole, a large number of the students are coming from five or six larger schools. So that number never changes too much, and that keeps the average 
where it is. So that's the main reason. Um, and as Phil said, as schools close, other schools open. So that's encouraging. And uh, uh, Dan, what about from, from where you sit, what, um, you know, being out there in Coppola Bay and seeing that community grow out there? <laughs> Catherine, we, we started IPA in 2004, understanding that our number one um, attribute was location. Hmm. Um, number two, actually, we think, and, and the reason it grew was that we had a very clear set of values, and that's what we communicated to parents, and I think that's what they bought. But uh, it's important to have schools located where people are, uh, particularly people with uh, children. And so uh, in that sense, uh, IPA was very fortunate. You look at uh, other schools in town, and, and, and there, well, the population uh, is pretty fixed. It's, there are not a lot of growth areas except maybe Kaka'ako and how many kids are 24 stories up. Um, and so they're going to have to draw from further afield if they're not one of the big schools. Robert's right. Robert... Uh, the, 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 the big schools have set enrollments, they've been set for a long time, and they really don't have the capacity to do more unless they expand in some way, like Iolani's talking about adding uh, uh, boarding to their program. Uh, but, um, you know, if you start a school with 150 or 200 students in, you know, one of the outlying areas, you're absolutely dependent then on uh, that community growing or at least holding its own. Uh, I could point out that, for example, uh, the the um, uh, windward side, uh, if you look at uh, the, the uh, demographic information there, that's a tough market. It's a m much tougher market than where I am out in, in Kapolei because we're a growth area. Right, and, and I know uh, the concern for a lot of families is tuition because mm -hmm. families have to make sacrifices uh, to be able to crack that nut, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it is going up and up and up. <laughs> it is, Catherine. This is Dan again. But I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, most independent schools uh, in, in, in the state have a fairly large percentage of children receiving some amount of financial aid, some schools as high as 50%. So uh, I think every school uh, endeavors to serve the whole community, and that means economically as well. Um, so uh, that's where we're very fortunate that we have some generous uh, foundations in town who support financial aid. Uh, there are generous individual donors. A lot of schools, it's basically discounted tuition. But because of that commitment to serve the whole of the community, uh, finances are generally not a reason, the only reason why somebody is not able to attend a school. Because generally speaking, if they have a need and can demonstrate the need and they meet the criteria for admission, the school is going to do everything they can to enroll that student. Okay. Well, if you are just joining the conversation, we're talking about private schools in the islands, and we'd like to know what you think. Please join the discussion by calling us at 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We would love to hear from you. We are uh, going to be uh, right back uh, to talk more about tuition and other things. Uh, stay with us. Uh, we have, have to take a short break. Aloha West Maui, Lanai, and Molokai. HPR has a new signal serving your area, and it's now live. Tune in to 103.1 KJHF for HPR One's news, talk, and a variety of music programming. Everything from morning edition to evening jazz. Loud and clear, 24-7. That's 103.1 KJHF in Kuala Pu, broadcasting HPR One to West Maui and beyond.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. Proud to support farmers in Hawaii, serving locally sourced produce and beef in daily breakfast, lunch, and dinner offerings. Zippy's.com. go back to talking about tuition because that is um, uh, a, a big factor, uh, I think, with many families, you know, who are having a hard time just trying to make a living here in Hawaii. Um, Phil, I don't know, where, where are we at? Is, aren't we around the time when the schools actually start going through the budgets to set tuition for the next year? Yeah, pretty, <coughs> pretty much the, the schools themselves uh, are putting their budgets together to take to their boards for approval, usually in the March-April time frame, and then they'll announce what their tuition is for the following year. And usually it increases 2 to 3% a year, um, in part to try to keep up with inflation and then uh, to try to other costs keep spiraling out of control like insurance and, um, and facilities management and the like. So um, I'm guessing that we'll probably see about a 2 to 3% increase again. Uh, and uh, what are, what's tuition at? Now, what are the, uh, well, do we the, know, like the, the school the that's got the highest tuition? Um, <laughs> I think, well, maybe Assets yeah. School okay. or Hawaii Prep. Um, Assets School, I'm on the board, so I can speak a little bit more about that. They decided a number of years ago um, that they would charge what it cost them to run the school. So compared to a school with an endowment fund or a strong fundraising program, they usually say 70% of our income will come from tuition, 30% will come from other sources. Assets didn't want to get onto that uh, runway. It's, it never ends. And so they charge, they come very close to charging exactly what it costs. So their tuition's a little bit higher. And, and assets, uh, we and should they're mention. Providing, um, a, an education for children who are gifted um, and dyslexic. Uh, or what we call twice exceptional, meaning that they have a certain gift, but they also have a challenge that has to be met. And that requires um, an, a, a faculty that understands children like that. So if you ask me where, where do the tuition dollars go, assets is a good example. Most of it goes to teachers. And as teachers have to make a living and make ends meet, we have to raise salaries. And every time we raise salaries, we have to raise tuition. And uh, the school that has a union, I believe, is mm. MIPAC. Is mm -hmm. that right, Phil? Yes. Uh, to my knowledge, it's the only unionized private school in the state. Okay. And mm. then uh, 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 let's talk about uh, some of the schools that have closed mm. uh, because HIS is the keeper of mm. the records. Mm -hmm. well, who wants to take that? <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, Phil. Um, so basically... Part of the benefit of having HAIS uh, uh, that uh, came out of that uh, um, is that when a private school closes, um, we take their transcripts. Um, usually it's only the high schools, sometimes include intermediate, uh, because those transcripts are needed to get into college and, and to get a job often and the like. And so 
We have transcripts going back to the 1970s. Uh, they're all, um, often we get them on a CD or a DVD or a, 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 a some kind of a digital device and then we throw them into a computer database. And so we get calls two or three a week of saying, Sally graduated from Hulalai back in uh, 1999. Can I get my high school transcript and send it off? Okay, so if, if families out there have questions about those schools that went under, you have the records and they should contact you. Yes. And uh, now uh, let's look forward because we have uh, what schools of the Future. Future, right? <laughs> and I know I think DOE has been looking at that about, you know, facilities and how do you house schools in high-rises. Uh, we have uh, technological advances. And so, Dan, you know, where are we looking to? Where are the models uh, across the country? I guess there are several different answers to that. Uh, um, there was a tagline that came out probably 15, 20 years ago, Education for the 21st Century. Um, and I think that was really driven by um, a uh, thoughtfulness about where technology would take people. Uh, I was being a bit puckish when I said I think that somebody needs to explain to me how 21st century education is different than 17th mm -hmm. century education because fundamentally it comes down to teachers and students and the interaction and the engagement that's there. But I took the point, which is that as technology changes, so will also uh, methods of instruction, uh, ways of learning, um, th those sorts of things. And I think that schools uh, struggle a bit. Um, it, it's, it's, it's in a sense, a kind of a mismatch of uh, the age of its faculty and how quickly the new uh, ways of doing things generate. And that might not be different from um, uh, you know, industry to industry. But fundamentally, you t if you have somebody who's been a master teacher and they're in their 50s or 60s and they never really had to make use of a computer, having that person retool is a, a challenge that, that faces schools. But I think that's the, the question that you're always asking yourself if you're running a school uh, and organize a curriculum is, uh, what's the core? What do these young people need in order to be successful uh, in, in their lives? And I don't think that's changed very much. What they need is the capacity to understand and accept change and to be comfortable with ambiguity those kinds of things, and those don't necessarily translate into any specific um, uh, uh, subject area. They're, they're more habits of the mind, habits of the heart, and I think that's where independent schools have, have, have really come through for a good long while because of the fact that we've been mission-driven and values-driven. We've been able to focus on those kind of uh, non-curricular or extra uh, uh, beyond curricular kinds of, of uh, needs that, this, that the kids have. Uh, as they become adults. Um, if you're learning the way things were done, uh, even in 2010, at this point you're 10 years behind. Um, and uh, with the rapidity of change in our culture, uh, that isn't gonna cut it. Is there anything else that uh, either of you, uh, Bob or, or uh, Phil, wanna add just about the technological challenges in, in, in professional development? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well this is Phil. I, I love telling the story. Of it. There's always been a fight about new technology and education and when fountain pens gave way to ballpoint pens <laughs> and when chalkboards gave way to whiteboards but all the way back to um, the Greeks when writing was introduced and the, the Greek philosophers said you know, it's terrible it's going to destroy education the students are going to be reading the, the writing instead of listening to the teacher and so 
technology has changed education, but I totally agree with Dan that basically it's always been <laughs> the teacher and the student and the transfer and the discussion and the reflective uh, and critical thinking. I would add, this is Robert, um, Phil and I were involved, um, oh gosh, starting 15 years ago with the Hawaii Community Foundation. It's important that we mention them as a, a partner uh, with HAIS, and they asked us to help them design a program that would allow schools to keep up with the changing technology that was available to them. And so there was a $5 million investment by the foundation, and Phil and I worked um, with about 15 schools, uh, mostly private schools, but there were a couple public schools, I think. And long story short, that worked. And what it led to was an annual conference, which we called Schools of the Future Conference. And it, it's 11 years ago since that started. Mm -hmm. And what's significant, I think, about that is that we get more teachers every year. And it's not just private school teachers. We had this year, I think, 2,000 people for several days, and more than half of them were from the public schools. And so you see there's an effort to keep up with the times that bridges public and private schools. Um, we were I guess motivated by asking ourselves the question, what do students need to know and be able to do to be successful in the 21st century? And that's what the conference focuses on. Well, we just had a guest in our studio who uh, uh, has a, uh, was doing research about how to help college-age students learn science. Hmm. And he is an, they developed an app called Flipped, I guess, which uh, uh, basically they don't want their students to be texting while mm -hmm. the professor is leading the class because they just say you don't re retain as much. At least that's what their research shows. But, uh, you know, and I don't know, in the high schools, I know phones have been on the contraband list, right? <laughs> or, or, or in some schools, I think. But I don't know. Are, are, are the this cell phones is, available? This is, this is Dan. Um, actually, um, I think our first reaction to phones was, was that way. And then it was our fifth grade, I think, at IPA that figured out, wait a minute, um, every child that has a phone actually has a computer in his or her hand. Let's take advantage of it. And so I think you found now that, that we've sort of gotten over the shock of, gee, they can communicate and maybe they're on a, a website they shouldn't be on, to this is a tool. And we'd be crazy not to take advantage of that tool. I want to add something to what Robert said having to do with, with the Schools of the Future Conference because one of the th themes that we pick up in the book is teachers teaching teachers. And I think that there's, there's far too little recognition of the fact that there's a community out there of teachers, whether they're in public, private, or charter schools, who have the experience of working with children. And in sharing that experience, you, th th there is strength that comes to all of them because they learn you know, oh, you did that with this group, and this I did this with this group. You just—it's that kind of uh, cross-fertilization that happens, which incidentally is also a byproduct of accreditation, because we send teachers out on accreditation teams, and they see how others are doing things. So that notion that you can learn from your colleagues is very strong in, in the ethos of the association. Okay, we uh, do have a shy caller <laughs> who wanted to know uh, how um, are you, uh, private schools, increasing enrollment of schools from lower income families? That's a call from Honolulu. 
So this is Phil. Um, I think going back to what Dan said, um, almost every school um, has financial aid. Um, and recruitment is open. We do an education fair <coughs> every year. Uh, more than a thousand parents uh, attended the last one at the convention center in September, um, and we had 60 schools there uh, with information on their programs and on their financial aid. And so, um, I think, as Dan said, if if the student uh, applies to the school and has the uh, the skills or the what's necessary to get into that school, then the school usually makes an attempt to uh, make sure they can afford it. Where are we at with books these days? Because in uh, books, because it, when my kids were in school, you know, we had to go. I think Ikipono, I think, was where mm-hmm. we had to go buy our books. But are we into digital these days? What What's the latest? Yeah, uh, Phil, again, um, I think um, there is this transition to uh, digital readers and iPads and the like. Um, and one-on-one computer programs. Um, if, if for no other reason than all the back problems students have from lugging <laughs> around 50 pounds of books in a knapsack. Yeah. Um, but I think it is both cheaper uh, for the students in the schools to go to digital. Um, and the difference between um, if you're studying biology and you want to see what a cell looks like instead of looking at a still picture as opposed to a video that explodes the cell, I mean, the opportunities are just so much greater with digital. I, I know my kids complain about the heavy books because when we had the, the, the bus strike, they had to walk home <laughs> uh, from Manoa, and I live up on a ridge, and so they walked a couple of miles with a very heavy backpack. <laughs> Let's talk about, I guess, the uh, what's coming up this year because the legislature passed uh, some new uh, laws and has to do with licensing. Mm-hmm. So w- what's the snapshot? Okay, this is Phil again. Uh, so that's Act uh, 227. Um, so uh, much to the uh, success of Robert uh, working with the Department of Education and the legislature, uh, the legislature passed the licensing uh, responsibility for private schools from um, the Department of Education to HEIS or a subsidiary of HEIS called the Hawaii Council of Private Schools in 1996, um, but they made it optional. And so Act 227 made it mandatory that um, every private school, whether it's for-profit or non-profit um, in the state of Hawaii that's um, offering K-12 programs must be licensed according to a checklist that we inherited from the state. So you are doing that or going to be doing that this summer? So we're, we've always been doing the licensing, um, and, uh, and we've, we're helping students that have just, I mean, schools that have just come out of the Wuckenburg. We thought going into this program earlier uh, last year that w- there were about 140 private schools in Hawaii. There's actually about 161 now that we've discovered, uh, many of them very small, some of them working out of homes, um, and but we're so there are quite a few private schools and we are working with them to go through the basic checklist it's not accreditation uh, that both Robert and Dan have described but it basically makes sure that a school is safe that they have their fire safety inspection their health inspection and that it has uh, that they actually have students I mean <laughs> there have been 
nonprofit <laughs> schools put together with that have a administration and no students and no <laughs> faculty and it's just a, a scam but uh, that they have a curriculum that they have the finances to deal with it um, and so uh, it's a half-day visit uh, provide a access to their documents and then they're licensed for two to three years okay because you're gonna be snooping around make sure mm -hmm. that they've got students enrolled in their school <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Interesting. Um, gosh I'm just trying to think uh, uh, what about homeschooling kids mm -hmm. you know I mean if we had 25 schools you said close uh, and yet our numbers are are up because you've got these smaller new schools what where are they happening uh, across the state any one island so, uh, uh, this is Phil again. I, I worked, uh, when I worked at the Department of Education in early 90s, um, as an assistant superintendent, the homeschooling was under my division, and so I would go out two or three times a month to visit homeschools. Um, and at that time, we had about 1,000 students that were homeschooled. Hawaii sort of leads the nation in homeschooling, uh, and last count uh, from 2018-19, uh, the DOE's records are showing about 6,000 really? students uh, across the state are being homeschooled. Um, often those students are collected into uh, a place that is a homeschool service provider. Uh, so they still go to school and they still have teachers and the like, but they're all being homeschooled, and so attendance is not mandatory. But okay, we have another uh, question that was uh, uh, sent across to us from Chip. Are Hawaii schools doing enough in regard to teaching students about climate change? Who wants to take that one? Well, I'll start. This is uh, Robert. I think, you know, the Greta Thunberg uh, story illustrates dramatically that young people are tuned in to climate change. Um, you know, her voice has changed the conversation internationally about what is important. And I think that's carrying over into schools. Um, you know, our teachers are tuning into that, our science classes, um, all the subject areas have an angle or a perspective that relates to climate. So I think we will be out front supporting uh, that important youth voice and emphasizing how critical it is for our future. This is Dan, and there's actually in, in the book refer to uh, the Global Issues Network. Jim, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they've had three different uh, statewide conferences now. Uh, young people focused on various uh, global issues and and climate change right there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's within individual schools, what, however it's involved in curricula, but it's also cross schools in this network that exists uh, among uh, students in the state. You know. Uh, let, let's uh, take a moment and uh, also talk about uh, bad things that happen uh, related to private schools. I think we've got a situation where uh, at Midpac we had a, a, an unfortunate uh, incident happen uh, where uh, a child drowned, uh, and I think there's a legal challenge that's mm -hmm. being mounted. Uh, Punahou, I think, also saw uh, they were in the headlines because I think some students or former students were involved in uh, the killing of uh, of albatross out at, in a point, 
so, so talk about that, you know, because people think, oh, you don't, you know, you'll hear about the, the public school kids, but the private school kids get into trouble too. There are, there are issues <laughs> surrounding <laughs> these, uh, these incidents in the community. Yeah, uh, this is Phil. Um, I think anytime you have a community of people, there are some bad actors or, or, or basically good people who do bad things sometimes. And then there are accidents. I mean, uh, just in the 10 years or so that I've worked with uh, Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, I'm aware of accidents that have happened on our campuses where a student was either serious or a faculty member was seriously injured or died. Um, and you mentioned the mid-pack uh, incident. Also, Hawaii Prep had a student uh, collapse and die. That wasn't an accident. Just um, so you you have those situations um, mm -hmm. that occur, and um, they're not intended. But this is this is Dan. Um, uh, I was in California as a head of school uh, when um, the school in Oregon lost the seven students on Mount Hood mm -hmm. uh, on a school trip. And I remember the head of school there, Malcolm Manson, who had since moved to, to California, talking about that to this assembled group of heads of schools. Uh, he was the one that made me aware, of the, uh, really think about the fact that one of the strengths that the independent schools have in that situation is, in fact, size. Because the smaller community, it's kind of it's it, it, it's it's more conducive to that notion of pulling together as a community, and we mentioned before we went on air that uh, it was it was Jim Scott who famously uh, identified the role that those of us who have been heads of schools understand is a part of the job, and it's the pastoral role. Um, it's that uh, need to uh, assess what the community needs and to be the person to whom. Uh, people can turn if they need comfort or answers or whatever it is. Uh, not an easy job. I, I, I would joke about the fact that if I thought about the ways that I could be sued every day, I would never have gotten out of bed as a head of school because there are so many things. It's all those students, all those faculty, all those parents, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's just life, and, and bad things happen. It's the question of how do you respond to those bad things, and I think there's been some real strength shown in independent schools and how they've responded to the bad things. Robert? And um, This is Robert. I'll just add to that by saying whether you're the leader of a public school, a private school, charter school, whatever, school leaders, um, you know, we talk about it. What keeps you awake at night, <laughs> you know? Principals feel responsible for everyone in their community. And what keeps principals or school leaders awake at night are the things that they can't control. Mm -hmm. You know, the accidents, the, you know, out of the blue kinds of things. The Mid-Pacific um, field trip was something that nobody could foresee. It was just out of the blue. It was a series of events that nobody could have imagined. And it just happened, and that's what we lose sleep over. We worry about our teachers, we worry about our students, we worry about the parents, and that's just part of the job. But is there, a, I don't know, a wake-up call just to make sure mm -hmm. that if something happens, uh, are we prepared to respond, and can we respond in the way that maybe our policy says to respond? So uh, we're offering uh, workshops um, on crisis management mm -hmm. and, 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 and planning for crisis management in the schools. Um, so we've had speakers at our Heads and Trustees Conference on that topic. Uh, uh, Kitty Yananoni's uh, company 
she's an excellent uh, uh, provider of that kind of information. And so we do workshops where she helps people be prepared for worst case situations. Okay, we do have a call coming in from Puna. Robin, we got a couple minutes left. Oh. What's your question? Aloha, yes. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I am a product of um, a private school, um, have been my whole life um, here in Hawaii. And I wanted to know, um, what are some of the main drivers for parents right now to enroll their children in private schools, given the high costs, even with financial aid? Um, I always remember being a financial aid recipient, um, and my parents bent over backwards to um, ensure that I had a private school education. Well, Thank you we, for that. Uh, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left. We Let's can see. each mention a couple of things. And um, interestingly enough, related to what Robin just said, safety is often a major concern. Being in a, in a safe, wholesome, wholehearted you know, community where you think your child will get the attention he or she needs. That's one. Yeah, this is Dan, and I think actually uh, we in independent schools strive to have small enough classes so that you can't disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, in addition to the safety, there's that notion of even if it isn't one-on-one -on -one individual attention mm -hmm. all the time, it's a much closer attention paid to the needs of individual kids that's simply a function of numbers. And I'll just quickly finish up. that Basically, I, most of the public schools use a single national standards curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got 160 private schools with 160 different curricula that are available. So finding a school that really will, you know, enhance your child's skills and passions is what private schools are all about. Okay, two minutes left. Any other final thoughts? Mm. Uh, early childhood education is in the news again, and uh, I would just say that as an organization, HAIS is a strong advocate uh, in growing the capacity for early childhood education in Hawaii. And uh, we were involved uh, three and four years ago with um, the governor and the legislature in trying to provide universal and free uh, preschool for four-year-olds. And now it's back in the news again. So I think that's something that we'll pay close attention to. And the research is very clear. You know, children that have a good early childhood education do better in life. Okay. This is Dan. Uh, in the book, we, we refer to the relationship that has existed for a number of years between the public schools and the private schools here. Uh, there's a picture of a man named Masakeda. Uh, he's almost an icon. He's a public school guy, but he's almost an icon in the independent schools. Pat Hamamoto, uh, Christine now at this point. Uh, the relationship has between the organizations has been very, very strong, and that benefits kids. Okay, that's a very good point to, to end on. We would like to thank our guests, Robert Witt, founding executive director of HEIS, Dan White, founding head of school of Island Pacific Academy, and Phil Bossert, executive director of HEIS. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. Uh, if you have a question or comment, uh, please contact the Talkback line. Leave your comments, 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show or find an older episode, check out the Conversation Podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.